Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is William Leith and we are talking about money, specifically why some people can make it and others can't. During the course of researching his new book, The Trick, William got to spend some time with the real wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, asking how he made his millions and why he continued to try and make them when he had more money than he could already spend. You get to learn what the true cost of wealth is from a Russian half-billionaire who lives in a beautiful mansion on his own with a butler, and from the hottest thinker on the planet, Nassim Taleb, on how to mitigate risk. It's a really interesting journey through the true price that people have to pay in order for ridiculous material success. And if you haven't already learned it from this podcast, it reminds you that being rich might not make you happy, but being poor can make you miserable. In other news, the response to the Ultimate Life Hacks list launch happening this Monday, the 15th of June, has been insane. I've never had so many messages and so much support. So thank you to everyone that is saying that they can't wait for it to release. It's going to be out this Monday. It will, it might not change your life. It might not change your life, but it, at the very least, it'll teach you how to make an unbelievable toasted sandwich or convince you to buy an automatic car or any one of 200 ways that you can upgrade your existence. So make sure that you tune in on Monday to find out how to get your copy for free. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time to work out what the real price of getting rich is with the wise and wonderful William Leith. William, how are you? I'm okay. I know the world's in a... I, I, this is what I say to everybody. I'm fine. Uh, I dread to think what's going to happen next. The world is in a you know very peculiar state. It's For me, it's the same. I'm doing the same thing as I always do, which is try and think of things to write, sit at home, go for walks, you know, meet the same few people, socially distanced. Now, although obviously not things like my son and that sort of thing, but um, my life's more or less the same. But I know that loads of people are either, I just had this conversation, I suppose I must have it every, every day because it is the conversation to have. Um, you're either, some people are locked in a situation they hate. Some people have to go to work 
and put themselves in terrible danger. Um, anyway, so I keep thinking of that. But, you know, like you said, it's lovely weather. You can go for walks and my life's the same. So I, I agree. I keep on saying it to people that um, I appreciate for some it might be challenging. But for me, it's not a massive difference from what I'm used to. You know, I've got slightly fewer people to see, slightly more time to read, and a little bit worse internet connection because everybody's on online. But yeah, other than, yeah. Other than that, it's all good. Um, so today we're talking about money. Very sort of passionate topic, a very uh, viscerally emotion-inducing topic. We're talking about why some people can make it and others can't. It's 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 a very weird thing, money, because you think you know what it is. You spend your whole life with this concept of money. You know, you've got it, you haven't got it. What is it? Oh, it's what's in my pocket. And then when you try and sort of drill down into it, try and understand what it is, how it arose, what it does to your head, then it becomes this very weird thing. And I realized that quite quickly. That's why I wanted to write about it because I didn't understand it. There was a big, you know, the global financial crash. And I think that wasn't the very first time I'd thought about money because I'd once tried to write about it and found after writing, I wrote a 1,200-word article on the origins of money from first principles. And I thought, God, I'm not going there again. <laughs> that is so weird. Um, and then we had this big crash and I realized that there was something wrong with, you know, money was something that really helped us and really enabled all sorts of things to happen. But there was something deeply wrong with it. And I wondered what that was. And was there a way I could simply understand it? Was there a simple way to understand what was wrong? So after that, I began to think about it a bit. And I was thinking, yeah, money, God, ugh, I could write about that. No, I couldn't. No, no, no. And then one day, and I realized all this time I kept interviewing these people who made tons of money. And I would say, you know, how did you make this money? And it's almost like you're asking somebody, hey, your garden's tidy. How did you do that? And mm. they say, well, you see that grass? Uh, I, I got this mower. I mowed it. And then I... Um, I painted the shed, like all this. And you ask people how they make money, and they go, well, first of all, I thought, yeah, I, uh, you know, what's, what's going on in the hi-fi market? And then I thought, yeah, I could make it a bit cheaper. <laughs> you think, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And then I made it a bit cheaper. And how much did you make? Oh, you know, like 10 million. So you think the people who make a load of money, they, they sort of understand it, and it seems like this logical thing. But for 99.9% .9 of us, it's, um, it's not logical. And, you know, obviously, if you could do it, <laughs> if you could do it, you would. And I couldn't do it. And I actually had some pathological problem with money, which is that even when I made a load of it, it would somehow get into me and change me. So I'd become this person who had some money, and then it would all be gone. Because identifying as yourself with your money is terrible. You've got to be the person who doesn't have money and then have the money. Um, so I thought my problem with money was a bit like, you know, I'm, an, I'm a, what do you call it, 
reformed alcoholic. I'm a, I've been teetotal for seven and a half years. Amazing. Congratulations. I, well, I wouldn't, you know, and I, I know that I can't touch alcohol. You're drinking, what is it, an energy drink? Oh, this is, yeah. there's no, there's no caffeine in this. Although, shout out to Noco. Thank you for supporting the podcast. But this is just some BCAAs, flavored, flavored elderflower. Nothing, uh, nothing too exciting. Right, right. So, so, um, I'd had this, you, you know, and anything that sort of, um, that sped life up, whether it was, you know, cocaine was a, I had a terrible thing with that. Um, alcohol, somehow, um, I would um, be unable to, the person who had had the substance was, seemed to be not me, but some raging, crazy person. So like two drinks, and the chance I have a third drink is very high. Three drinks and the chance I have a fourth drink is so high that all bets are off. And then where do I wake up? I don't know. So, 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 and I had that relationship with money, which is like, oh, I've got some money. You know, I could have this, I could have that. Well, why not? Oh, it's all gone. Well, I'll borrow some. Anyway, so obviously it, there was some sort of drug-like quality to it. Um, and it became part of you. It becomes part of you because it's like um, the way I explain it is it's like part of you is a bully and is saying, go on, have this, have this. And, and another part of you is like, well, I guess I could. I guess I could have that. And you buy yourself out of every, you know, oh, I'll go to both parties and then I'll get a taxi back. Rather than you have to make a choice, you know, which party you're going to go to. So um, I knew I had a problem with it, which was even more reason to to write about it, to try and uh, sort of study it. And I kept on interviewing these people, and I thought, yeah, they do tell me how they make money, but I'd like to think about this a bit more. And the turning point came when I interviewed Jordan Belfort, who was the, who is the person who was um, portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio in the film The Wolf of Wall Street. Did you, did you interview him before you knew you were going to write the trick? Um, basically, um, the, the, the story was that I had got a contract to write a book about money and I, and I didn't know how to do it. So Jordan, I was... mate, are, <laughs> are you there? I've heard yeah. that you did okay with money. It was well. The thing is, you did okay with money, but also had a terrible problem with it. And I realised that he was he was everything that he was the confusion in one person, which is how do you make a hundred million? But then why, when you've made a hundred million, do you commit a fraud? that might well land you in jail for money that you could never spend. So I thought, here's, here's something that's interesting because he's got a real gift for making money, but it's almost like, why would you then commit a fraud? Why would you then, you know, put yourself at that risk of going to jail if somebody catches you, which they did. So I thought that was really interesting. So I, I, I spent a few days with him, and he was rehabilitating himself, actually, in, in a way that was quite 
admirable. You know, he, he's 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 really down and out. He's he owes a hundred million at this point, and he's wanting to teach people how to make money. And he's got this great confidence and this great um, salesmanship. And he's te- he's telling me that the greatest part of his life was when he had this company and he had this room full of brokers and he was every day giving them these talks to inspire them to motivate them and whatever he said worked and he wanted to get back to being that person because that was where it really that was one of the things that it was for him was the ability to be on stage and talk to people about how to pull off some some trick and 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 this was um or a series of tricks which was how to um buy stocks and then get other people to buy them so they were worth more and that worked to a certain extent and then he he met somebody who said do you know what you can do if you want to do even better you can actually pay people to buy the stocks and then tell them when to sell them and you you can then manipulate the market in a way which is completely illegal so he did the completely illegal thing and um and was caught and went to jail and so here he was after this had happened in his new life doing a similar thing of getting up in front of people and saying um this is what you have to do if you want to make money and one of the things was Don't let your stupid emotions get in the way. Another of the things, the overriding thing, I think, and this comes, um, you mentioned Nassim Taleb, who we'll get to, but what he said to me, the first thing I remember he said was, when you get rich, you get rich quick. But that's not at the start. You have to do an awful lot of things before it kicks in. But when it kicks in, it happens very fast. In other words, you're going to spend a long time putting all these pieces together, working out what it is you have to do. And if you do it a bit wrong, it, it nothing happens. And if you don't do all of it, nothing happens. You have to get this complicated series of things to work. But then when you do everything happens so it's a bit like this is not a linear thing you go along and and i thought to myself it's a bit like learning a language right you're translating the language into your own language and it seems all very stilted and every day you learn a new word and every week you learn a new bit of grammar but basically nothing much happens and you think will i ever get anywhere and then one day, somehow, it clicks and you realize you've got to think in the new language. And then you start, oh, God, that's what it is. <laughs> this isn't this painstaking bit of translation. It's not, it's not, you, you, you know, it's not all these labels. It's, it's, it's not the same world with, with, with all these labels on it. It's, it's a different world. And the labels are different. And the way they think is a bit different. But once you've accepted that and you see that, you're in that new world. So I thought, that's probably how people get rich. 
it's 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 a complex set of things and if you read genuinely good um self-help books ones that don't say he here's a magic here's a bit of magic you just need to like concentrate on money and it'll all come through your door what would you put into that category can you put your well, money I, where your mouth is with that yeah i'm, I'm saying something like the slight edge by Je- jeff olson basically says you're gonna if you want to succeed at something you're gonna have to learn all about it so let's say you wanted to learn a language or let's say you wanted to learn the uh, you know how to run a garden center or whatever it is you the want art of to selling do. yeah well anything you want to do you have to learn about it and you're going to start learning about it and there's going to be a period in the middle where you don't seem to be getting anywhere because you you're not you don't seem to be making any progress but actually, all the work you're putting in now and will be putting in for the next couple of years is going to pay dividends eventually when everything f- comes together. You're going to be glad you did all that learning. So you've got to think with the idea of there's going to be a future me who knows how to you know, make a film, write a book, whatever it is. But at the, but there's going to be many, many days when you feel, oh, this isn't working and how, how can I move forward? So basically, that's how almost everything seems to work. And that, that's, the, that's the kind of big lesson that if you want to do something, you've got to do it over and over. It's the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. It's not entirely that because, you, you, well, he does say, Malcolm Gladwell does say, you've got to have um, feedback. You've got to learn. And I realized also that this is very much like science, right? It's all about looking for patterns. You have a, you have a hypothesis. It's not necessarily your belief. It's something that you're saying might be the case. And then you try and disprove it. And you set up all these experiments to, to, to say, why doesn't this work? And eventually, the thing that your hypothesis might survive, and, and then you, you know that you might be getting closer to the truth. So it's kind of like um, all of these people, and all of these people that I interviewed, had a method that was a bit like that. Mm. They, 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 um, I mean, I didn't put this in because there was just so much of it. But I spent about a year studying Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Great guy. Him and Charlie Munger are both fan favorites from this show. Right, okay. So the thing that um, impressed me, I mean, lots of things. I mean, he's obviously a very um, strange, um, very unusual guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And you realize that when he went to... When he went to Columbia, when he went to university, is it the the Wharton College? Is that what it is? Well, he he went to the Wharton, and then he went to Columbia, and he met Benjamin Graham, who was the guy who wrote the Intelligent Investor. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Graham would he he had a class of people, and he would uh, you know say, well, let's talk about the insurance industry or something, and the the, the sort of student age Buffett would know all about it and would say. Yeah, well, I would say that this company is doing this, and next month we'll see that. And 
Benjamin Graham was like, I beg your pardon, you know all this stuff. <laughs> um, but what impressed me, what was incredible is that I remember I did this thing where I, I got all the sources I could find and I, I imagined a day in his life when he was 16. And I think he ran 11 businesses when he was 16. And they weren't major businesses. One was a car wash business where he hired kids to wash cars. And actually, there came a point when he dumped that because it wasn't making enough money. Um, he had a golf ball business where he realized that you could, f you could go to a golf course in Nebraska and you could go into the lake where they, the, the, there were these sunk, you know, sunk costs, the, the, the golf balls are all gone. You could get somebody to get the golf balls from the bottom of the lake and then you could post them to some golf ball, second-hand golf ball guy in Illinois where people paid more for golf balls. So you could, um, you know, you could just hire people to, to get golf balls and then Some you could arbitrage them opportunity off. in a lake somewhere in wherever it was he was, yeah. And yeah, and there were, there were stamp collections. You know, he, he realized that um, a full collection of stamps was worth, you know, $200, but a collection with 10 stamps missing was worth $5. So he would then um, look at the, the sorts of stamps that needed to be that, that, that most collections were missing and he'd make okay. up the collection, you know, and he, he did, he did 10 or 11 of these things, um, all the time when he was 16. So he was constantly running these businesses, made more money than his teachers, his parents, mm. extraordinary. Um, and what he was learning was how businesses worked from the ground up. So you got an incredible, um, view of, um, what a business was trying to do and how the people who ran it were contributing to it and how, how they were frittering things away or not. So he, he would home in on what really worked about a business. So when he started buying businesses, he had an incredible sort of gut sense. He got, mm. You know, he'd, he'd spend a day with people, you know, tell me about your day, tell me what you're buying. And he would really get a sense of how they worked. Um, and so that's learning, isn't it? That's making it a science. It's kind of imbibing it. So I think what, one of the interesting things about that that I've been thinking about recently is because of the imbalance, because of how disproportionately we see people's successes and not their grinds and failures before they are successful, we don't get to see the handle of the hockey stick. Yeah, we, we just get to see the head. Yeah. So yeah. for the people that are listening, if you can imagine a graph, and it's the shape of a hockey stick laid on its side, and it's going along, and it's flat, and it's flat, and it's flat, and then it just kicks up, and it hits a hits a, 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 a inflection point, right? Tipping point, as it might. Yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the the best because it's rare that you have in normal day to day life. Like my mum doesn't have a a a, a graph of the stuff happening in her life you know like how how maybe how much she's meditating if she uses the headspace app sufficiently mum keep using the headspace app um but it, it, very often you don't have an objective measure however i have done and it's been this podcast and i, pr I promise you it's the shape of a hockey stick it's the shape of a hockey stick you do tons and tons and tons and tons of work and not really that much happens and then something happens 
and it just goes whoop. And there's a a quote that James Clear uses. I can't remember the American football team. Someone who's listening will know the one that I mean. There's an American football team who has on their wall a quote about a stonemason, and they say, um, we know that it isn't the hundredth hit which snaps the stone. We know it is the 99 which came before. And yeah, the, yeah. the point with that yeah. is that it takes a lot of time to become an overnight success. Yeah, yeah. And all of the things that we've come up with there, so Jordan Belfort, someone who started off with penny stocks, he learned from the ground floor up, anybody that's seen the movie knows this. Then he starts to hone his craft uh, on stage in front of a big group of people. Then, moving forward, he even repurposes that now, now that he's barred from operating in the financial sector, he now repurposes that. Then you've got somebody like Warren Buffett who runs so many businesses. I found out the other day, Warren, Bus- Warren Buffett, Warren Business, uh, Warren Buffett has 90% of his net worth attributed to 10 trades. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. 90% of his net worth attributed to 10 investments. Unbelievable. So we've got these people who are all showing the same thing. And yet, all of us, yourself, me, everyone, is seduced by the idea of get rich fast, uh, the 10-minute booty abs blaster workout to lean your, your bum out in this time. Despite the fact that we are shown time and time and time again that the way to become an overnight success is actually to just grind away at something effectively with a feedback mechanism, making sure you're doing deliberate practice for a long time. I, I want, I mean, I once saw, um, I don't know if you follow uh, football, that thing that used to happen. Um, but um, the former England player, Rio Ferdinand, was once asked, who is the best player that you ever played with that you ever you know trained with or played with and he said and i've forgotten the name of this guy he said it's such and such and it's not a familiar name Mm. and so the interviewer said yeah i kind of remember him didn't he play a few games for west ham or whatever and he, he goes yeah yeah he's got so much natural talent this this guy and you know he'd had his career he was now about 30 odd um but he said this guy was he, he had more talent than anybody I've ever played. You, what you mean even so and so? Yeah, yeah. This guy was really extraordinary. And so the interviewer said, "Well, what happened to him? Why? Why? You know, he obviously could play in the Premier League, but um, <clears throat> why didn't he? Why don't we all know his name?" And he said, "Well, he he didn't um, have the same work ethic as all these other people. It's like you know." you you have to train every day you have to stay behind after training if you've got a bit of a uh, you know if your fitness isn't quite there you have to try again and again and again and maybe you're going to have to work on this move or that move and everybody who succeeds does that and um uh, pure ability isn't quite enough hard, even if you even if you train hard but work you ha- beats talent when talent doesn't so, work hard Yes, yes, exactly. If this guy had trained, maybe he would be better than anybody. He would have been better. This is what uh, Rio Ferdinand was suggesting. But, you know, it's not that these other guys weren't brilliant. It's just that this guy didn't, 
you know, he worked 95%, but not 99%. And it's that last little bit. That's where the growth occurs as well, right? And also, as you start to see, as with anything, if there's a bell distribution of normal, right? Yeah. Out onto the tails, the further that you can push yourself out towards them, the fewer yeah. people you are going to have to compete with, by definition, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, right, I want you to tell us about the Russian half-billionaire and his butler, please. So we've learned about Jordan Belfort. Who's this, who's this Russian? Well, this, this, this guy, the interesting thing about this guy, somebody was saying to me, this guy lives in the nicest house in, you know, the country, maybe the world. It's, it's this house, a very special house that was built in 1698 or it took a few years, 1700. Um, and it was built by Nicholas Hawksmoor, the famous architect. But it was originally designed by Christopher Wren, the fam most famous architect in, in history. And, um, and Wren passed the project on, and between them they managed to concoct this beautiful house. And it has beautiful grounds, and it has, you know, the avenue of trees and the amazing reflecting pool so that you can stand behind the house and you can see it doubled in this reflecting pool. And it's, everything is thought of. Where is it? It's, it's in um, Northamptonshire. Okay. And why is it, so, why, what makes it so special? Like it's just pretty and it's got a pool. It's, but... yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, um, it's, if you imagine something like Buckingham Palace, but smaller and prettier. Um, pretty it, big, it, pretty high bar to set then. Yeah, yeah. It's kind, it's kind of, it's, it's a lot smaller than Buckingham Palace, but it's, it's got perfect d dimensions, and all these architecture critics would say, "Ah, oh, this this house is it's it's one of the best houses ever made." So I was interested in the fact that some Russian guy had bought it, and I thought, "Who is he?" And so they gave me this story to go and spend a day at this house with this Russian guy, and it was odd. The, the whole thing was odd because um, he. Um, He'd made this, an awful lot of money in the in the rag trade, clothes, and he had these um, these concessions in in um, department stores all over the world, and, and a lot of stores in China, a lot of stores all over the Far East, a lot in America, and he had somehow um, he 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 dialed he, he he'd found the point at which the how expensive it was to make something compared to how many you sell compared to the price point you sell it at. And he's got this computer-like brain. Um, and so, and I said to him, um, is, you sound a bit like um, Ingvar Kamprad, you know, because I once did this thing on Ikea. I couldn't, Kamprad wouldn't see me, but he actually... Let, uh, you know, I stayed in some nice house on a lake somewhere in Sweden, and I did meet his designers. And the story about Kamprad is that, you know, the designer could show him a table. Here's a table. And say it's made out of, um, you know, teak or, it, well, it's made out of oak or whatever it is, you know, pine. It's made out of pine. And this is how big it is. And Kamprad would look at it, and his brain would go, I'd get the pine from the Ukraine and then that would be such and such a ton. And if we made, you know, 10,000 tables, that would cost this much per table and the trucking costs. But then we'd have to buy in, 
in um, Swedish crowns, and then we'd have to sell in, uh, you know, whatever it is, and then we'd we'd blah blah blah, and then the, the petrol cost, and he would his mind would be buzzing with all these things, and then he would just say to the guy, "Okay, do it," or <laughs> or, or like, "No, this one's not going to fly," okay. um, because he he would look at everything, and he he would just be working out the whole supply chain. And that's what he was. And this, I said this to the Russian guy, and he said, "Yeah, that's exactly me." You know, he thinks about where you can get the cotton, and who you can, which factory would it, he has loads of factories in China. You know, which one would it go to, and and then where would I sell it? This would be good for Los Angeles stores, and it would be good for the blah. Mm. And then you'd sell it for $600. A, yeah, we'll do it. So, so we've still got here an unbelievable dexterity uh, and kind of depth of understanding of their own operation. You know, you look at these people who make a lot of cash, and sometimes you can discount them as just lucky, fortunate idiots. It doesn't sound like you really... doesn't sound like this... Russian guy or Jordan Belfort is is one of them. No, all of these people. I mean, including Alan Sugar and including Howard Schultz and these people that I interviewed. Um, they all looked at their business with a a real depth of understanding. You know, Howard Schultz and his coffee shops. How much? How much per square foot? Would you get back if you rented this? How many? How much would you have to make? You know, he knew all that. Um, you put comfortable chairs in, you change it a little bit, and he managed to. He had a, an idea that if you if you made coffee shops a, a little tiny bit more like bars, you'd get all the business for coffee, and he was right. Um, who does Alan Schultz own, by the way? Howard Schultz. He Starbucks. He was the guy who started Starbucks. Okay. Um, and 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 again, he's one of these guys. Um, he's he, he he's obviously brilliant. Uh, so many of these guys, they've got a sort of um, they remember everything, and they, they, it's almost like and it's like with Taleb and his and his um, his graphs and. You know, you can see him thinking about like mathematical equations, and he can sort of almost draw them. They're in his head. He lives them. Um, it's it's not like uh, I, I mean he 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 understands um, the the value of how options are priced and how how likely or unlikely something's about some something is to happen, and therefore how much you should spend on predicting that it would happen so what tell me just tell me what it was like being in this building then this russian guy well, who's, he, who's he there with well as i as i say he he was living in this vast estate um at the time with his butler it was him and his butler and the thing i found no one else no no one no. else well he was he, he 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 would sometimes get models to try on his clothes uh, and he would have these he ended up marrying one of them not the one that was there the day I was there, incidentally. Um, but it struck me that he, he was ploughing a lonely furrow in a way, but, but in this extraordinary luxury. And he said to me he was going to have dinner, and I said to the butler, you're going to cook him dinner? And he said, yeah, yeah, I always cook him dinner. I said, what, you, do the two of you just sit around eating? And he goes, oh, no, I eat in the servants' quarters. <laughs> wow. 
and so so interesting, isn't it? I know. So well, the guy had the guy had a church as well on his on his land in his grounds. Lovely old church, and it's like you've got a church, you haven't got a congregation. Yeah, it's just you. It's just you in there. So something I've been thinking about a lot recently as well, actually, is the price that you need to pay for someone's success. So people might look at Nassim Taleb or this Russian billionaire, half billionaire or Conor McGregor or some Instagram model or whatever and say, I want that. But they don't understand the price that you need to pay, not as in the long hours and stuff like that, but the pathologies that come along with having a mindset which permits you to do the thing which you think is good, right? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What is the price that you need to pay psychologically, biologically, uh, routine-wise, in terms of your sleep, in terms of your mental health, in terms of the thoughts that go through your head when your head hits the pillow at night, all of those things, right? Like, what what is the price that this Russian half-billionaire has to pay in order to be such a complete uh, uh, sort of crazy advanced thinker with regards to his yeah, supply yeah. chain? Yeah, well, exactly. The, the, the best case I had of that was Felix Dennis. Who's that? Um, who was he was he'd made about the same amount of money about in in, in pounds about f- probably four or five hundred million pounds that sort of thing and he um he had this big estate in warwickshire and he also had an uh, that was the only place of his i went to and i went to to it twice and it, but he also had places he had a, an estate in um the caribbean and he had one in Connecticut, and he had various houses. But when I went to his estate in Warwickshire, which was his kind of main place, there was that he he he'd he'd got these um, he'd got an avenue of statues which led up to this kind of barn that he'd converted into this kind of luxurious, crazy a place where he sat and contemplated and wrote poetry and that kind of stuff. And the line of statues, and, you know, who commissions full-size statues these days? Well, he's dead now, but it was him and the odd kind of dictator, but not not many people. And at the very end of this avenue was this um, pond and a statue of Icarus plunging to his death. The person who in legend had flown too close to the sun, which I thought was a bit odd because, you know, he himself had done all this unfettered capitalistic um, making these these great moves and tons of money. And yet the thing that was outside his, his very, the place he went to think was a warning, the warning, don't do this too much. So I went in there and I, I, I asked him about this and and he said he thought that making money was, he kind of said, you know, it had driven him insane in a way. It had driven him crazy. He'd become a crack addict. He, he'd had an existential crisis which lasted for years. He'd nearly killed himself and arguably did kill himself with all the crack smoking because he ended up dying of lung cancer. So the Surely that had something to do with years of smoking crack, um, and um, and he said, yeah, he'd be- he'd made himself into a different person, a person he didn't like, you know, this person who um, 
who was hard driving and obsessive and permanently focused on how to make money, how he could get an advantage in the market of whatever it was he was doing. And in a way, he, he, you sort of think, well, he'd made like 450 million quid or whatever, but he, he should have stopped at 50. That last 400, what was that worth to him? Um, it, had, it had done him in. So why do you think he kept going? Well, this is the this is the big question, and it's a que- it's a bit like a question for the human race. You know, we want more and more luxury, and we're prepared to go to the very edge of um, our own sanity, and also our own. Um, you, you know, we're prepared to take big risks to get just a little bit more. We're prepared to. We, we will say, well, I've heard that these forests are, are, are crucial to the earth's um, upkeep. But hell, we want a bit more luxury, so let's chop them down and see if we can get away with it. We might, we might find a way of tweaking it so that we're all right. So I think, I think that this, um, this pushing the envelope is part of us. And I think the people who make the most money ha- are kind of, sometimes they are, unbridled examples of this that they're, they're, they're runaway examples of pushing and pushing and pushing and also i mean i'm going to use an analogy of, of drinking which isn't necessarily the same but um the writer and drinker kingsley amis once said um it's not about being drunk it's about getting drunk so the process of getting drunk, the, 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 the constant change mm. from, from being less sober and less... I mean, being drunk, you can keep that. It's getting drunk that's the thing. And so these people, if you think about it, the best time they ever had in their life was when they were on that curve. The hockey stick was going right up. Mm-hmm. Now, they can't, how do they keep going? They don't, they don't want to stop and say... Do you know what? Let's have another infinity pool. <laughs> let's let's commission a few more statues. That's part of the, in a way, the pathology. Uh, it, the thing that they crave, it seems to me, is the actual making of the money. You know, you you can not only the, not the money itself. Yeah, you can only spend it on certain things. You, once once you've spent it on. You know, you can have a private island. You can have a nice house on a private island. You can have a, a jet and a helicopter. Yeah, blah, yeah, blah, 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 exactly. Blah. And 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 once you you can have a, a Ferrari, and then you can have a slightly better Ferrari, and also a Range Rover, and then a one with tinted windows. And the, the, you run out of things to buy pretty quickly. Um, and so the, it, it was that process of making money that was so exciting. Isn't isn't uh, that that's something quite profound? I think there that the richest people in the world are some of the richest people in the world who have more money than they can ever spend are not. What they're not doing is focusing on the money. They're not focusing on the outcome. They're focusing on the journey. And yet we look at these people and we think, I want the end of that journey. I don't want the hockey stick. It's almost like they're um, keeping that grinding mentality going because that's where the pleasure is actually 
brought from, right? Another thing as well is the, the, the virtuous mean. I've been throwing this around recently that we're absolutist beings, right? If you tell me to have one biscuit out of a packet, it's really hard. If you tell me to have none or all of them, that's actually quite easy. I find it quite easy to have no yeah. biscuits or all the biscuits <laughs> um, because it's a very uh, sharp line in the sand, right? Um, whereas just to have one, to have enough but not too much is really challenging. I had a neuroscientist on talking about the seven deadly sins, you know, like the fundamental problem with humanity. And every single one of them is fixed by sloth. You need a little bit but not too much. Wrath. You need a little bit but not too much. Lust. Yeah, yeah. You need a little bit but not too much. And it's the same. It's the same. Greed. Spoke a lot about greed on that as well. You need a little bit. You need to get yourself over the inertia of having nothing but when you push yourself forward and you chase it too much, it becomes as anything. You turn a tonic into a toxin. You pathologize the thing which liberated you into something which is now actually a prison. Yeah, absolutely. And there, I, I looked into, I, I wondered what greed was. And, and, and you've got this uh, Michael Douglas, greed is good, you know, in, 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 and that's in that film Wall Street where he, he says, greed is what's going to save us. Greed's what's going to make America great, etc. And, um, and, and w that's going back to Adam Smith, which is, you know, if everybody does what, you know, seeks what they want, then in a way you all come together and find the, the value of everything and everybody knows what they need to provide to make themselves some money. And it's a self-generate, it's an emergent system. And, of course, that's true up to a point. I, I actually began to wonder what that point was and where things started. Well, that's a good question. Go like, wrong. Where yeah. do we, how do we draw that line? Well, I looked, I looked into the history of, um, of money. Uh, the, the whole idea of prosperity is that once we start to exchange things, i.e. trade, we naturally start to specialise and people who are good at things end up doing what they're good at. Um, and so at the top end, you've got everybody who's good at something is doing that thing. And they're also, because they only have to do that thing and they can, they can outsource all of the other things, um, they, they tend to become inventive. So if, if, you raise, if you're good at raising chickens, just say, um, pretty soon you're going to find out that, you know, if you feed them this, they get a bit bigger quicker. And if you feed the, the males a different one diet from the females, then the, you'll get more eggs or whatever it is. And you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't specialized. So when everybody's specializing, you get all of this innovation. And then you get more and more trade, and that leads to more innovation, etc. So swapping things is great. When you have money, swapping things is easy because they find a price. Uh, and we can all agree on what the money's worth. Um, and I think that the, the thing that starts confusing people is when you start applying that to money itself. So when you start applying, um, you, you know, trading and specialization to the exchange of money and financial products, it seems to me that people can't get their heads around it in the same way that they can get their heads around trading money for goods trading money for money you get you get bubbles and crashes but it's basically. orders of magnitude there right you you're right multiplying the thing by the manipulation of the thing 
Yes, exactly. So, so, so it's acceleration rather than speed or whatever. It's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. things taking off. Where's Taleb? What about Nassim? Him? Nassim, we need to work out it's when we're, me and you are fumbling our way through probably to him grade one mathematics, trying to yeah, work yeah, out the exactly. term. And I need to, we need to ring him and say, Nassim, what's the what's the word for this, mate? The thing is that some people like him do understand. It, it doesn't do their head in, but he, but most people it does. And 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 you know the people who work in um, in money in banks. Um, they'll often, I mean, as a pure example, if you look at um, rogue traders like Nick Leeson and many others, Peter Young, all sorts of other people who started making bets and then they went a bit crazy, they, did, they, they kept on making bets that were losing and they become like um, gamblers chasing the, their losses. A, a lot of bankers have that problem they don't they, they they're not unemotional mathematical machines who can who can say ah oh, look i i need to um invest in this lose a bit of money so i understand how it works and then see where i can make the big money they just end up being all getting emotional and chucking a lot of money away and when lots of people are betting like that you get this kind of mayhem and sometimes all this value is wiped off the system and nobody really understands where it's gone and now when it's machines that are doing that i mean half the time it's machines that are doing that and and um i remember reading this account of the so-called flash crash where t- algorithms kind of became confused and they lost billions in about half a second what, and when the, was this 2009 um, that, that there was some problem with our algorithms, um, you know, that, that they're programmed, they're instructed to do, you know, this in the, this circumstance, and if if this, then do that, and if that, then do the other. And normally, these these reflect quite sensible ideas, but when it all happens so fast, and they're sort of interlocking robots, and they don't understand each other you know, there is a problem. And in this case, it magically reasserted itself because the algorithm somehow managed to see what was happening and claw it back before it... Completely annihilated the market. Yeah, Dear yeah. me. Okay, and, uh, so we, we've just touched on him there. We've sort of danced around him a couple of bits. Nassim Taleb, uh, very, very... What do you call him? The hottest thinker on the planet? Is well, that that, I, I was saying that... that, that that's he, 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 this, he, When I interviewed him, I, I, I saw him a few times, and I think the Sunday Times had called him the hottest thinker on the planet. Um, and it was at a time when he was... Um, when people like David Cameron were asking his advice, and... If you see The Big Short, that movie, mm-hmm. um, he's not in it, but he represents those people who um, who could see that um, there was something wrong with the housing market. What was happening wasn't sustainable, um, and and it had to end. And when it ended, or even when it started to change a bit, even when it flattened out, Every, all, all the houses would come onto the market, they would lose value, and all the people 
all the different funds that had invested in those um, mortgages would find that they were underwater and all the banks that were relying on those funds for short-term money so they could keep their and it was this big kind of circular mm. um you know and and a few people <clears throat> who who were sort of outsiders spotted that this was bound to happen and i mean michael burry was one of them who who was featured in the big short now these were people who 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 weren't part of the crowd you know that and and the thing about taleb um is that he was brought up in lebanon and he's now about 60 so when he was about 20 um there was this uh, terrible war in lebanon and everybody said to him oh yeah this is we we occasionally have these wars uh, don't worry it'll be over by christmas you know and then it wasn't and it just kept on dragging on and and nobody predicted that that this would be such a long-term immensely destructive conflict nobody could sort of bear to imagine that the whole world of lebanon would would change and even when they saw it happening they were still wanting to hold on to the belief that oh you know it's going to be all right soon and so he began to think um weird things happen things that people don't want to believe will happen but it's not just that it's that these weird things are the triggers of history so nobody thought the first world war was going to be a four-year kind of um, bloodbath they thought it was going to be a few months in fact it it's almost like an accidental war it's like this treaty meant that this country had to say i'm going to back that country if you do this and all these treaties this complex system sort of clicked into place and suddenly you're having a war in france and belgium that has brought half of europe into it yeah and and it has sees no sign of stopping and what the hell is that all about and so it's this this thing that changed history that nobody was expecting and he began to think god you know um these weird things that nobody predicts um are now i would say we're in one of them now he has said oh you know this isn't a black swan he calls them black swans mm. these unexpected but very important events and he says this isn't a black swan because people predicted it and actually i think well yeah technically but it's really not did a few people predict it it's what does the world at large think and i think we weren't prepared for this i mean i actually wrote an article about about flu epidemics uh, uh, just a general thinking it was a normal you know, i was reviewing a book and the headline was something like what about <laughs> are we prepared for the next one and i didn't even think about it mm. somebody had put that headline in now i can send this article to people and say look look at uh, me i'm a clairvoyant from but, the but, future but, but, but the point is i i i, I didn't I would, you know, no way did I think of this as a real thing. I just thought, yeah, we've had these flu epidemics. Uh, some of them take off and some of them don't. The last one that really took off was in 1918. Let's look at the reasons for this. 
but nobody had planned for it. And and Taleb's argument was all sorts of history is basically dominated by these unexpected moments. And so if you know how to position yourself to deal with them, you can make a ton of money if you're in the markets. So that that was his basic thing. But in the end, you know, he, he made a ton of money, but wanted to get out of just trading and get into sort of thinking about history. And that's what he's done since 2009, I guess. What was it that you, the, the summary that you gave to do with how people don't like to be wrong or they don't like to be proved wrong so they always presume that the same thing's going to repeat? I can't remember. Well, yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of like you've got two ways of investing and you would imagine they balanced each other out. So you can invest in things that you think are going to get better. And so you can put money into things that are going to get better. And if you're right, then you'll mostly get small returns back all the time. Um, but then when the thing crashes, you, you might blow up. You might lose the lot. On the other hand, you can bet on things getting worse. And most of the time, they don't. So you're losing money all the time. But when they do get worse, you make your big killing. And the point is that these things aren't mirror images of each other because, because people it's cheaper to invest in things going up than it is to invest in things going down because not many it's very lonely. It's a lonely place to be losing money every day in, in, in the hope <laughs> that everything crashes. So not many people do it. So it turns out the, the odds are better and the, the, reward, the returns are bigger. Um, it's a bit like with job safety, you know, safety's overpriced. So people can, people can, a lot of people want a job for life. Mm. Um, so they're that, prepared to be underpaid for it a little prepared, bit every single yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it turns out that um, it, it's actually probably safer to do something else. Well, like also, th those, those jobs, as proven by the fact that we're in the middle of a chaotic global pandemic, actually aren't all that safe. They're not hugely yeah. safe industries to be in. So what did you learn, if you could sort of synopsize what your time with Taleb and, you know, a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with that man would be very uh, envied by a lot of people on this planet, you know, as you mentioned, David Cameron, uh, governments and uh, uh, politicians asking his advice. What did you, I mean, is it learning about being prepared to be in the out group to remove your emotions from the situation? What was it? Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I think it's, I think what he says is in a way, it sums up what all the other people do. It's kind of, um, have a deep understanding of something uh, you have to put you have to sink a lot of money and a lot of time into understanding things and then when they move they move fast so it's it's kind of like nothing happens and then everything happens um who was it that said um you know nothing ha most decades nothing ha happened but there are some weeks in which decades happen like it was that churchill who said it that it was it was someone russian uh there's another one which I absolutely adore, which I, I'm going to misquote. I'm not even going to bother trying to quote who it's from, but the quote is, 
history doesn't crawl, it leaps. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. This is a like the evolutionary pattern. Um, you know, things change, animals change into new species, but it, it's not like a gradual progression. It's much more like um, nothing much happens and then there's a leap and they, they become something new and maybe they'll survive and maybe they won't as that new thing. So that's another thing. Things happen in, in leaps and bounds. The things that are um, important are often unexpected and history is all about these weird unexpected things. So if you, ex if you try to expect the unexpected, you'll do a lot better because nobody else is looking. Uh, and I suppose, as you identified before, we have this comfort predisposition, even for bankers who must have an idea that there's a potential boom-bust cycle. You know, they're not going to be completely ignorant to it. They're certainly going to be at least a little bit better informed than the normal proletariat on the street. Um, but because we have this predisposition, because we don't like to think about bad things happening, we we tend to not fully account for the effects of them occurring and that's that leads to it's just like a sweep it under the rug type thing like put it behind the wardrobe no one's ever going to see yes yes and it's 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 like we're in this uh crisis now and most people talk about it as if um well We've it's we're done now. It's nearly done, <laughs> yeah. and, and and you get the occasional person saying, "Do you realise we're at the very beginning? We don't even understand what it is that we're up against." And sure, it might vanish into thin air, but it might be ten years of um, uh, readjusting and yeah. reinventing, changing and the way that society works. Do you think that there is a a limit? to where we should put positive thought. So naturally, I have quite a catastrophic mentality, uh, which I think I inherited. Uh, it's half genetic, half socialized. Um, so I tend toward negative thought, but I've, I've worked quite hard to, to overcome that, right? Like I've worked quite hard with doing gratitude to actually have a more positive mindset and, and, and turn things around. But when you start to scale that either across societies, across countries, across policy making, or just maybe scale it across people, um, is there kind of an upper bound on how much we should be pushing that level of sort of it's all bright and rosy, just look for the silver lining? I guess you, you have to go ima imagine, because we haven't evolved much since we had, you know, very, very rudimentary tools and lived in a groups of 150. And I guess you, you, you needed people, didn't you, to say, we could get across that river. We, do, we would just need, I don't know, uh, and once we're over there, the, the bison are much bigger. And, and you need people to say, yes, you're right, we'll... we'll bloody well do it. We can get across this ravine. Um, but you needed some pessimistic, depressed people to say, oh, God, are you kidding me? Not this again. Do you remember when we last did it and all those people fell in and it was terrible? 
so you need a, a mixture of people, don't you, and a, a mixture of emotions. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's an awful lot of... Um, have you ever read Ian McGilchrist? No. What should I read? Um, he, he wrote this book called The Master and His Emissary, and it's all about the two sides of the brain. But it's the, the takeaway thing is, you know, part of our brains are, are looking out at nature... That's what they do. That's what they did for 200,000 years. They looked out at nature, at the sky and the rain and the clouds and the, you know, the trees and all this. All the time they're looking out at nature. And the, the other side of the brain is thinking, how can I make a tool out of that? You know, I could chop that branch off and then it would be this big. And if I chopped it in half, I could then join them together. And, and that's what the other side of the brain's thinking. And of course, the, uh, that side of the brain, the left side, the, the tool-making side, begins to make more and more tools and until what the right side is looking at is not so much nature but tools. You go into a city and you're looking at tools. You're looking at cars and computers and, and you know, telegraph poles. And then you're making tools out of those tools. The left side's saying, yeah, how could I make tools out of those tools? Oh, I know, I could sell them in advance and then charge interest and then come you know mm. and um and so of course we have we have sort of created a new environment that we're not quite we're not quite up with yet mm. and, I, and I, I suppose because it's so safe as well because we, we don't yeah we don't have that fewer people are falling into the ravine and more exactly. people are making it across on the log and then the tool the tools to the power of tools uh, is a cool concept. I like that. It makes me think about the financial products that we were talking about, and they're like exactly uh, houses to the package of mortgages to the package of bonds to the package of all the way up, right? So, final thing, final question. You spent all this time, clever people, Nassim Taleb, and a Russian billionaire, and his butler, and Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street. So, what did you learn about money? What did they teach you? Are you are you rich now? No, I'm, I've never been. Well, no, yeah, I've never been rich. I've been richer than you know many people, but I don't think I'll ever be fabulously rich. Uh, and I, I could, I could be comfortable <laughs> if I, if I keep a, uh, if I, if I put a break on my spending, which of course I have done now because I can't even uh, go to the shops. <laughs> um, so, so uh, also I don't. Uh, you, you know, all of those things that say um, if you've got enough money that you're not frightened of, um, you know, people knocking on your door, you, you can't get much better than that. You know, I've got a nice, nice-ish car. I could get a nicer car. Would it make me happier? Not really. I could get a fabulous car. Would it make me happier? Not really. I, I'd, I'd be, I'd be sick of it in a week. And I'd think, yeah, it's okay. My old car was pretty good too. I didn't really bother about that. That was fine. Um, so I'm I'm aware that obsessing about it isn't the way to go. You know what what you want to be rich in is time, and also your relationships with other people. And being obsessed with money can take those things away. So. You, you you want to use your time. You want to know that you're using your time well. And I think you feel it if you're learning things, if you spend your life learning things. And 
spending time with people talking and all of this. That's great. And you think to yourself, well, if I had a, an extra 10 grand in my pocket, would I feel happier? Uh, not much. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have enhanced. You know, you could go to uh, a restaurant with people and have a great time. And if you had twice as much money, you could say, yeah, I want the best champagne, you know. But that might be a distraction, and it, it's not necessarily going to make anybody any happier, really. Of course, people are going to go back and say, do you know what? I had the best champagne. But that would have been really a distraction. I once went to this um, – this, I was reviewing this resort where the wine was so expensive – that I think I drank a thousand dollars of wine and I wasn't even a bit drunk. Wow. You know, the point. This is back when I drank. But the point is that you, you could spend. Uh, it, I wasn't spending the money, but um, it was. You know, the money was being spent on my behalf, incidentally. But I could have. It would have taken me a couple of grand to get pissed. You know, <laughs> and, That's and, an and, expensive and, night. Uh, and this is a resort for very, the super rich. And, of course, they go there and they think, oh, wonderful, look, this bottle of wine's a grand. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, they've got, they've got the cheap stuff here, darling. They've got the cheap stuff here. <laughs> and, 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 you know, all of that is once you've seen it, it's like, okay, fair enough. Um, so um, so was, that, was that the answer to your question? I think it's, so. I th well, um, let, me, let me see if I can repurpose it into... It, let me see if I can try and define what I think that was. Having money is a comfort and is useful in that it liberates your time to spend doing things that you want to do with people that you want to do it with. Yeah, but of course, you've got to be the person who can use that time well and if you spend all your time making money you might find that you've got you do get to buy yourself some time but you don't know what to do with it because you just want to be making more money <laughs> so so you, you know that there are things you can spend your time doing felix dennis um who had thought about this a lot because he he felt it, he'd ruined his life with money in some ways and he said something like um you know if i write something i haven't wasted my time but if i buy something i, I might be sick of it and i might feel it's not really going to help me you know spending money isn't the answer whereas sort of making something makes you a lot happier well doesn't so that doesn't that speak to what we what we touched on earlier as well about it's the process of becoming not being or having yeah, that's right. It's as soon as you're drunk or, or, or rich, um, you, you, you've reached the finish line. Is that, is, that the, is that the rule of thumb? As soon as you're drunk or rich, you've reached the finish line. Well, what I, what I mean is if you're, if you're a drinker, it's the getting drunk. And if you're, a, um, if you're a, a tycoon, it's the making of the money. But it, if you were to place all these people in their luxurious habitats and say, right, there you are, you can spend the rest of your time sitting by your infinity pool drinking your thousand thousand pound wine yeah. and and have and and having you know if you want to drive your rolls royce you don't even need to reverse it because your garage has a rotating floor you know <laughs> and that felix dennis had this he had his rolls royce put into a rotating garage so that you could always be pointing outwards 
you know, you didn't have to do that pesky thing of reversing into what was actually quite a big drive or, you know, it's not like there was a cramped space to reverse into, but you wouldn't even have to bother reversing because you could just make the garage rotate. Mm. So, you know, you can buy an endless number of those things, but they, they have diminishing returns, don't they? Um, and it's really something else, something much more elusive that will make you happy. I love that. I really do. I hope I'm continuing to drill this into the listeners' heads, the hedonic treadmill that we're all on and the fact that if it's not a study saying that anything over £56,000 doesn't have increases in happiness, it only has increases in satisfaction, or whether it's you speaking to the smartest or richest people on the planet, or you know, Morgan Housel from Collaborative Fund and The Motley Fool telling us that all that money does is give you time to spend with people that you like doing the things that you want to do, you know, how many different directions do we need to hear this from before we can start to kind of rid ourselves of this materialistic predisposition that we all have? Maybe just that one more podcast that we've done right <laughs> now, William. So uh, the trick out now, available, Amazon? Yes, yes. All uh, other uh, good bookstores? You can buy it, you can download it, and you can listen to an audio version, which I was really pleased with i didn't read it by mm. the way who did you get to read it well it's a guy called rich keeble and his voice is a bit like jack d so it sounds like <laughs> my book re- read by jack d with, with that that kind of um i don't know it's just perfect and i actually emailed him and said my god thank you so much uh, so so it's worth listening to the audiobook too amazing link is in the show notes below if you want to buy it through that you will be supporting the podcast at no extra cost to yourself if you don't already have an audible subscription i recommend that you go and get one and if you do that you can actually get this book for free just because you get your first book for free which is amazing and you still get paid so that's a great way to do it look william man thank you so much final final point for the people that are just watching have a look at how beautiful the cover of this book is. You will see it if you're walking through Waterstones or in the airport or whatever. You will see this. No one's in an airport at the moment, actually, either. You're never going to be in a Waterstones either. In 2022, <laughs> when we finally reopen, you will be able to see it in an airport. But look, William, thank you so much for your time. It's been great, man. Thank you. 